VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 133. A few months ago, in episode 122, we welcomed government and politics professor Liliana Mason on the show to help us make sense of tribal psychology. In that show, we discussed how tribalism is a basic human drive and how it takes very little to encourage us to think in terms of us versus them. Those tribal tendencies can scramble public discourse and derail many of our best efforts at progress, from science communication to elections to our ability to converge on the truth and go about the grind of building a better democracy. In short, we established that humans value being good members of their tribes much more than they value being correct, so much so that we will choose to be wrong if it keeps us in good standing with our peers. In this episode, we welcome Liliana Mason back on the program because her new book on this topic just hit the shelves, and in it she goes into great depth discussing a central idea. Our conflicts are over who we think we are rather than reasoned differences of opinion. The book is Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. And personally, I feel like this is just about the most important thing the social sciences are studying right now. And I think Mason is one of the most brilliant of these scientists. And I promise the insights you're about to hear will change the way you think about politics, tweeting, elections, and arguing with people on the other side of just about everything. And this will be one of those episodes where we just sit down and have a conversation. And with that, let's pick her brain. Um... First of all, just tell me, like, uh, what encouraged you to go so far as to put this into a book? So this actually started off as my uh, my doctoral dissertation in in two thousand nine. So this has been this has been in the works for a long time. Um, and in fact, I you know this is two thousand nine was like the you know hope and change year. It was Obama's first term. It was Obama's first year. Uh, so you know it, this it wasn't all this this stuff wasn't all as sort of as as frothy as it is right now. <laughs> um, but I but I but I came to you know I was looking I was looking at at you know sort of all these different identities, thinking about partisanship, thinking about polarization, and then there was this argument between these two political scientists, Alan Abramowitz and Morris Fear. Arena that was that was going on and sort of had been going on for ten or fifteen years, and they were arguing about whether or not Americans are polarized. 
Uh, and that it, they sort of kept throwing, you know, descriptive statistics back and forth and saying, you know, well, if you measure it this way, they are. Or if you measure it this other way, they're, they're not. Um, but they kept talking about uh, Americans being polarized in a way that meant that they disagreed with each other about what the government should do. So they had different they had different issue positions. And that's what they both meant when they when they said polarized. And I was looking around and, and thinking about what I was seeing in politics and thinking, well, maybe they don't have to disagree in order to hate each other, right? That we have all of this social psychology literature that talks about intergroup conflict and almost none of it is about disagreement, right? Most of it is about just groups hating each other. So I started thinking, what if we start thinking about partisanship um, in that way as an intergroup conflict problem and using that literature that you know historically has looked at racial intergroup conflict or other types of intergroup conflict, but apply it to, to parties. So that's sort of how the project started, um, and then you know gradually over time, the things in the world started happening that <laughs> started confirming <laughs> these ideas that I have. Great. There's something that you bring up that I um, I put it down. And I'm like I'm going to say this to people everywhere um, and and bring it to their attention, and that's. Um, Dinner parties used to be where you avoided politics, and now we find ourselves talking about politics at dinner parties as the norm. Like we expect that we're going to have a little, a little jam session where we're going to say, "Hey, do you think this is crazy? Yeah, me too." Um, or, "Hey, do you think these people are stupid? Yeah, I agree." Um, if you could speak to that, like that's to me that feels like uh, a great indication of something that's changed. Yeah, it's so it used to be that the that pol it was uh, politics and religion were the things you don't talk about at at a at a dinner party because you don't want to offend the people who clearly are gonna you know obviously are gonna have different positions than you at your table and uh, that assumed that you were gonna be sitting at a table full of people who had diverse political identities and religious identities and uh, and so. Increasingly, one, this is sort of one of the major influences that I argue in the book on, on this increasing sense of, of partisan dislike, is that we have become separated from each other as partisans, um, not just in terms of what we want the government to do, but geographically and culturally and in all kinds of ways, so that now the people that we tend to invite over for dinner parties are the people that we agree with. And you're right. That now at dinner parties, there's always that sort of moment when everyone says, OK, let's just let's talk about the elephant in the room. You know, here we go. Politics. And and that's because everyone tends to agree. And in fact, if you know that there's someone at your table who doesn't agree with you, you probably won't have that conversation. Yeah. Uh, unless it's like Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner, you're stuck with, you know, you're, you're stuck with your family. But I'm re I'm realizing the Thanksgiving dinner analogy, which comes up a lot in these conversations, comes up a lot because now that's that one time that we don't have, you know, we we don't get to sort who comes like mm -hmm. like it's a throwback to a previous era, and, and more than it is something that's always been true. And people hate it. It's like the, you know, people dread people dread going to their Thanksgiving dinner because they know that they're going to be forced to have a political conversation with someone who sees the world completely differently than they do. This also, uh, I, we we do this the the sorting people into our uh, into groups when we decide to go hang out at, at parties or or uh, get-togethers or lunches or dinners or whatever. Um, I know actually I know plenty of people who do this on their social media as well. They've carefully over the last uh, year or two just 
either turned off notifications for the people they disagree with, or they've they've done this pruning thing where they've removed everyone who believes differently in them politically from their Facebook, and sometimes from their less so from Twitter because sometimes I think people want to see what's going on on the other side there. But since Facebook feels more like it's our our identity. I know people who are like I. I if if you support Trump or if you support uh, Hillary, I'm just going to delete you. Um, that seems strange. Is and is that a? And what I'm asking here is that a function of social media or is that a function of something larger than social media? I think it's both. Um, and you know, in terms of the function of social media, it's you know, possibly these are people that we would not be running into on a daily basis. And so you know, as soon as you block them, they're just gone. Um, and that's one very easy way to remove conflict from your life. And, uh, you know, add, of course, add on to this, it's like much more easy to be nasty and mean on, you know, when you're typing uh, than it is to be that way to someone's face. <laughs> but, <true>. but the, <laughs> but, you know, a lot of this is that, you know, you learn all, you learn kind of your political story in your, in your world full of people who agree with you. And, and then you have, you don't really come in con. In, in contact with someone who disagrees with you until you're in a place like Facebook, where you have huge numbers of, you know, connections to people who are, you know, third degree removed from you. And those people you can get into an argument with. Um, but but you're not very good at it, right? Like, we're not very good at having political... We haven't practiced, you know, we haven't practiced having political conversations with people that we're willing to compromise with. And And so... And also this fact that we have this, you know, very different set of understandings of what is real, that's a major problem for, for any kind of conversation. So it's partially that it's Facebook. I think it, it's also just, you know, sort of the, the political moment is so polarized that that we don't really know how to speak to each other uh, with any sense of, you know, common humanity uh, or, or, you know, attempt for understanding. Yeah. Well, let me talk about let's start, let's get into some of the stuff in the book. I I like to talk about this using the term tribal psychology, but I know it knows it goes by a number of different terms depending on which discipline is describing it. Um, and I'm just wondering, what terms do you prefer when we talk about this? Is tribal psychology okay, or is there something that that is more specific that is more uh, illustrative of the concepts from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I have used the term tribal psychology before. I'm kind of moving away from it now because I'm not sure that it's exactly the right um, the right concept or communicates the right thing. Um, essentially what it is, is just, it's just identity. Um, and this is, it can be kind of confusing because the way that, you know, pundits try to talk about identity politics, uh, is different than the way that social psychologists and political scientists talk about identity politics. So that, you know, that part can be confusing, but essentially, you know, what, what this research demonstrates is that everything is identity politics. All politics is, is rooted in identity. And the more, um, isolated we are from our, from our social outgroups, the more we're going to think of our own group as the best and think of our outgroups as terrible. Mm. And so it is this, you know, it becomes this either or us versus them type of politics. And I think of that, you know, in terms of, in terms of theory, that's just, it's based in social group identity. So I tend, I tend to call it sort of identity-based politics, which then gets confusing when people say, you know, you know, 
politicians need to stop doing identity politics, which in my world makes no sense at all because every single every single time a, pol- a politician talks tends to be using using some trope of identity that they're you know already sort of referring to. Well, I, I guess let's briefly uh, separate those. So, what is the difference between what pundits say when they use those terms and what people in your world say? Right. So, so generally, the way that it tends to be used is to say um, you are advocating for benefits for one particular, usually marginalized group of people. And so, you know, the 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 sort of way that that the thing that they mean by saying that is you're trying to get benefits for this one group at the expense of everybody else. Hmm. And you know, the way that I think about identity is. Every single one of us has multiple social identities. They, as human beings, our identities affect the way that we think and process information and relate to other people in the world. And we all do it in, in exactly the same way. And we're all vulnerable to this kind of thinking. So to say that one, you know, one party or another is using identity politics, um, that it, it's like, you know, Democrats are are constantly using oxygen, right? Like it's just like <laughs> it's a thing that it's a it's a thing that is just universal to human beings. We all do it, and and if we just you know understood that from the point of view of basic human psychology, then we could understand what are these biases that we're working with. What are the things that we should be looking out for? Um, you know what what are our vulnerabilities to kind of getting in trouble with this with this us versus them type thinking? Um, and if we can think about it that way, then nobody is using identity politics, but because everybody is is focusing on their own identities and kind of being blind to the humanity of people who are not them. And the, and by focusing on particular groups, when you say identity politics, uh, you make it sound like there are certain groups of people who don't have identities. Mm. And and that itself is, is just, you know, it, on its face, it's absurd if you think about this as just a human, you know, a human psychological uh, process. Um, but also it, re- it reflects this, you know, sort of sense of, you know, the, generally the, you know, white male identity in American politics is, is seen as the baseline. Mm. And so anybody who, um, anybody who, who has neither of those identities or is lacking one of them, um, is, it has, has identity politics. They do identity politics. Okay. And I was actually, yeah. I was interrupted in a, in a conference at one, one point when I was talking about identity and I it was interrupted by an, by an older, an older white gentleman who said, you are a woman, you have an identity. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be? And, and he, it genuinely, there was just this sense of like, I can't have an identity. Obviously I don't do identity politics. Huh. So that's, I mean, that's, you know, we're working with that in, in, in all of our assumptions. That's, that's part of what I think the punditry are, are, are using is that assumption to talk about identity politics. Huh. We all have a hundred identities and, or thousands, but the one that's the most salient at any given moment is the one that feels threatened. Oh, that's so, so good. you know, if, if, there are these, you know, groups of, of, you know, traditionally high status people who are seeing other people's status rising relative to theirs, that can feel like a threat. And, uh, and so they will respond to that by, you know, holding on to that threatened identity much more strongly and gathering together with other people who are in the same social group to try to defend it. Oh my God. That is, that's the basic process. Ah, that is super fascinating. And I, um, 
I mentioned to you before we had uh, on a previous episode we we had some neuroscientists who came in and they um they put people in, in a in a brain scanner an MRI they and they had them um, they challenged their their positions on a number of things uh, some positions were like did Thomas uh, Edison invent the light bulb and you'd tell them all the reasons why that's not true and then other things would be about like gun control or something like that and uh, they found that. When I, I remember when I interviewed them, they didn't understand it. And then, then after I talked to you, I totally understood what was going on because they said that the for the for a lot of those positions, people didn't they they responded that the brain scanner showed nothing you know unusual. But when they when they challenged them on certain political ideas, their brains responded as if they were being attacked by a bear. That was what they that's the actual phrase they used. <laughs> and and I was like, why? And they're like, I don't know. And and then it wasn't until I talked to you and read your book. It's like, oh, their identity is under threat. So their their selfness is under threat, and their bo- their brains responding like they're actually being like their body is being attacked because their self is being attacked, um, which seems strange. No, no, I, this is this is uh, an analogy that that I think about a lot, especially with the bear. I, I call it, I I use the lion. I use a lion, but but the the same it's the same example, which is essentially you know if you if you are. Um, if you're looking, if you're, you know, you're standing in the middle of a, of a, of a, you know, prairie or something and, and you hear a lion roar, um, you don't know where it is and you're all alone, uh, you hide, right? You don't, you don't like try to fight the lion because that would be absurd. But if you're standing in front of a lion and you see it and you, and you hear it roar and you're surrounded by a, a strong group identity and you see a threat, then you're going to respond with, with, you sort of like, like get ready to fight. Whereas if you have a weak group identity or you feel sort of isolated and alone, um, you're not going to respond with such, um, you know, with such sort of adrenaline. It's going to be more about hiding and, and get being quiet and, and kind of calming down and listening. And so those are kind of the different ways that people respond to threats based on their, their level of identification with their group. Oh my God. Well, um, okay. So, you mentioned if we're talking about psychology and social psychology findings, there's there are two that you talk about in the book that that sort of set up a lot of what you have to say. And um, although we've talked about these previously on the show, they've been years ago, and I think it would be interesting to just sort of briefly pass through them by way of your uh, insights into them and how they connect the, to the, your work at large. Um, the first is the robbers' cave experiment. Um, if you could just sort of briefly take us through what happened there and what that sort of says about the way our brains naturally make sense of things. Yeah, so this was an experiment done in 1954 um, outside of Oklahoma City uh, by a bunch of, of social psychologists trying to understand what makes group conflict. And so they recruited um, 24 fifth grade boys and who, who they wanted, they tried to make sure they were as, as sort of socially similar as possible. So similar, you know, grades in school, similar family structure, uh, similar physical and emotional fitness. And they uh, brought them to a three-week-long summer camp. Uh, the first week of camp, the boys were separated into two different camps. They didn't see each other. And they came up with names for their camps. They called themselves the Rattlers and the Eagles. And then, uh, and then after a week, they were told that there is another camp down the road. And immediately, they wanted to meet the other boys and have a, and have a competition with them. And so they started off uh, playing a baseball game. And the first thing that happened once they all got into the same field was they started calling each other names. 
and the uh, the ultimately it the conflict extended to the to the point where the the uh, the experimenters had to shut down the the competition between them because they started throwing rocks at each other and getting violent. So this <laughs> at this point, <laughs> so the boys ended up having to be separated. Uh, by the end of by by the end of the second week, uh, because they were becoming very violent against each other, and not only were they um, being violent, they were they started to sort of perceive reality in a biased way. Um, so they so one group of boys uh, accused the other group of uh, of throwing rocks and ice cubes into their swimming hole because it felt a little colder, and one of the boys stubbed his toe. Um, the other group of boys said that the that the, their opponents had left garbage on their beach when in fact it had been you know the boys themselves. And they just forgotten about it. Um, they were asked to do a task where they picked up beans off the ground, um, and then they, the experimenters, which who were being the counselors for the camp, placed the beans on an overhead projector and asked the boys to estimate how many beans there were. Uh, and the boys always estimated more beans for their own team members, uh, but it was the exact same number of beans every single time. It was the same handful of beans every single time. Huh. So. So there, this is this is a really, I, I, it's a great way of getting at kind of you know in little in little fifth grade boy form, the ways that that when you separate people into two groups and they they create an us and a them, not only do they immediately want to have a conflict, but they also, um, they, but they also actually kind of start perceiving the world in a biased way. Yeah. And there was we've had evidence for this for going a long way back. Uh, I know you mentioned this when you were last on the show, but it's worth mentioning alongside Robert's Cave, the Tajfell experiment. Right. So the the Tajfell experiment was in a lab, um, much more controlled experiment. And uh, long story short of this is essentially uh, Tajfell he called it the minimal group paradigm experiment because he gave people group identities that were minimal, that were essentially meaningless. So. Um, had people estimate the number of dots they saw and called, you know, half of them overestimators and half of them underestimators or told them they liked the, you know, he asked, he showed them art and then said, well, you are a fan of Kandinsky. And um, so various different, you know, group identities that they had just learned about right there. Uh, they were all alone in the room. They were never going to meet other people who were in their group. Um, and then they were asked to do a money allocation task. And the way that I describe it, sort of the most, the sort of easiest way to describe it, it's not exactly what happened, but this is the principle. Essentially, he said, choose between these two scenarios. Either you, overestimators and underestimators, let's say, both groups can get $5, or um, your group can get four, but the other one gets three. And he was assuming that at this very minimal level of group attachment, there would be no bias against the other group. And he was going to start there and then try to add conditions to see, you know, what, where does the bias come in? And in fact, what he found was that people consistently preferred to have the win condition over the sort of what I call the greater good condition where everybody gets the most. Even when they, you know, they had just learned they were in this group, they had never met another group member, and they were sitting there all by themselves. Uh, they still preferred to actually spend money in order to beat the other team. Okay. Now, this is... I think um, this sets up this this crazy thing that we do by default, which is this us versus them thinking, and it can be uh, activated 
so easily. In Robber's Cave, it's, you know, in the real world, but there's really, you know, these these kids were randomly sorted. And then in, in the lab, in are more controlled conditions, they're given things that are not really identities, really. They've, and they've just been handed them, and they're meaningless, and they're alone. And yet still, this is introduced, and there's really no baseline. It can be introduced by just about anything. You talk in the book about how there are... We're biologically, not only are we biologically driven to do this, but there are weird biological effects that happen after we do this. Um, I want to go through both of those briefly in that you talk about um, cohesion, categorization, and um, some interesting things that were brought out by Marilyn Brewer's work. Right. So, so I think Marilyn Brewer really sort of said it most succinctly when she said humans have two basic needs, one for inclusion and one for exclusion. And and what that means is that we want to feel like we're part of a group. We want to feel included and supported, right? Because what if a lion comes and we have to fight the lion? So we need to feel like we're part of a group. But there is no meaning to the group unless other people are excluded from it. So we want to feel special because we get to be in the group and not everybody gets to be in the group. And if we don't feel like there are people who are excluded from the group, then the whole group itself sort of feels less important to us. So we really need it is it it's not something that we can kind of just like get over. There is a real, you know, sort of primal drive for excluding people from the group and defining the group with with boundaries. And the this need for cohesion, obviously, this makes sense in an evolutionary way. Just the idea that we have to, you know, forming we're a group, you know, we're a primate and we form groups, and that's part of our our essential nature, and that's how we survive the tooth and nail environment. But we also, from a cognitive psychology standpoint, we have a tendency toward categorization. Uh, and you say in the book that it's not just of the outside world, but also of ourselves. How, how does that work? How do those two elements work together? Yeah. So this is a uh, you know this is one of those things where you know. Uh, Parenting small children, I learned. I learned about the, the need for categorization. You know, it becomes very important for children at a certain age to, you know, to say, you know, either I'm a girl and I'm a boy, or I, you know, I like yellow is my favorite color and it can't be your favorite color. You know, like there's these things that you can really see in young children, and the the you know the it really is a very basic human thing that we do is to say, how do I make sense of this? whole world of things I see in front of me, right? Which things are, are me, which things are not me, um, and uh, which things are mine, and which things are not mine. Mm. And, and then how does everything else fit, right? Like, where does everything go? What are the categories that I can make to understand not only all the things in the world, but also all the people in the world? And and so you need to figure out, you know, first who you are and, you know, what what that means about you. Um, and also understand your relationship to other people. And that without that sense of categorization, the world feels very chaotic. It's a, you know, it's a very uh, it's a really important uh thing that we have to do for our own psychological well-being. Mm. Uh, if you can't categorize things, then, then it's, you know, the world is chaos. So it's not, a, it's not an inherently bad thing that we do. It's just a thing that we have to do to understand the world. This is the way that humans process um, the, the amazing complexity of all of the, all of the you know, cues that we're seeing out there. Um, but so knowing that... Um, Having this sense of you know need for inclusion and need for exclusion, essentially what that's saying is we need to be able to say I'm this, but I'm not that, and and without you know saying I'm in category A and not category B, 
that those have to be exclusive categories. Otherwise, we didn't we don't have categories. We didn't categorize anything. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so right. So this is this is kind of an essential, you know, very very root, you know, uh, cerebral need that that humans have just to make sense of the world. Before we're talking about you know conflict or prejudice or anything. This is how we start understanding things. And at a very young age, this is, you know, the way that children make sense of the world. And we keep doing it throughout the rest of our lives. Yeah. And what really, and this really shocked me uh, reading your book, is that once we have moved from categorization to uh, groupiness and group cohesion and tribal effects and all these other things, um, once we are grouped up, we there are these very strange um, biological effects that come into play. If if those are if you don't have those off the top of your head, I have them in front of me. But if you do, I, I'd love you to run through them. Yeah. So some the ones that I that I that I can recall right now. Um, uh, in fact, some of them were were uh, neuroscientists who who discovered neurobiologists who discovered them, uh, where they showed someone a picture of their of a, a person's hand who was the same race as them. And um, and uh, and showed a needle pricking the hand, and the and the people's brains responded as if their own hand was being pricked. But if the person's hand was a different race, the skin was a different race, they didn't respond that way. Mm. Um, seeing uh, seeing an outgroup member, um, uh, sorry, seeing an in-group member uh, win something or suffer makes a person's brain act like they are suffering. But uh, seeing an outgroup member suffer makes actually activates pleasure parts of the brain. Oh my god! Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, what were they? No, there's not. Oh, yeah, there's a, the, the, um, the people learn in a in a group learning task. Uh, people learn more mm. slowly if they're being observed by an outgroup member. Uh, your saliva, uh, you secrete higher levels of cortisol. Um, whenever your group identity is threatened, which kind of goes back to the, what the other neuroscientists were finding. Um, people, and people's, uh, uh, you write in the book that people's brains respond similarly when, um, when people are sad, uh, if the person who is sad is an in-group member, but if they're, um, watching an out-group member, they have a more positive emotion when they see that person being sad. Um, and uh, I actually know from, uh, from, uh, from work I did on another uh, project that uh, when people do uh, mirror, neuro mirror neuron research, that when um, you can put someone in front of a mirror, an actual mirror, and, uh, and it's a mirror that's been manipulated so that there's a different person's image in the mirror. And when you reach your hand up to touch your face, there's a very highly trained uh, person who does the same thing. And um, over time, you will graft your self-image onto the other person, but not if they're of a different uh, skin color. Um, and yet those same effects are completely mitigated if you change the skin color to purple because uh, they, there's nothing to grab. There's, there's no sense of any identity to, for purple people, I guess for most people. Um, but the, all of this comes together in this, to say that this is not... This is not conscious. This is not under your control. This is happening to you. Right. The the fact that that you can detect, uh, you know, psychological group attachments in saliva, I think, is <laughs> suggests that there's this is not something we can control. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. 
close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs, and won. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. This, this brings us to things that you specifically talk about, and um, I would like to run through these, and all of these blow my mind, so forgive me when I go, what, to every one of them. Um, I'm going to sort of read some of your quotes back to you and have you disassemble them, uh, and I think, some, I think all of these are just worthy of, of writing on a blackboard and walking by every day and putting into your, into your um, collection of things that make the world make sense. One is... Um, we act like we disagree more than we actually do. What do you mean? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's kind of the title of the book, right? Uncivil Agreement. Um, the, the, ex- the example that I would give today, sort of to be, I guess, you know, politically salient today is to think about um, like child separation at the border, right? So, you know, I would, I would suspect that, that 99% of Americans would say children should not be separated from their parents. Um, and, but when you get a partisan cue attached to it, uh, you can actually get people to say the opposite thing that they would have said, you know, six months ago. Yeah. Um, similarly, you, you can convince people uh, that, if their part, that their party holds a different position than it does, and they will change their position immediately without even knowing that the party gave them the cue. Um, and, and, and they'll, they'll think that it all was, you know, coming from their own logical reasoning process. We have, we have research that shows that specific thing, right? Yes. Yes. An experiment by Jeffrey Cohen from 2003, uh, changed people, changed the, the welfare positions of Democrats and Republicans and people, um, just, they matched their own position to their party and had then were asked, you know, did your party have an effect on your opinion? They said no. And they were asked to write an essay about it. And they broke down a whole bunch of reasons about why they held that position. So they came up with them, you know, out of whole cloth on the spot, um, not knowing that this was something that they were even doing. So um, the, 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 the statement that we, dis- we act like we disagree more than we actually do kind of reflects this this sense of our opinions can be very fluid and so fluid that if we wanted to come to a compromise, we could, if there were not these pesky identities in the way. Oh, wow. But, but we can't, 
we can't come to a compromise because our identities are making us want to take positions as far away from the other side as possible. And and so assent, what that means is that we are we are trying to take to look like we disagree um, in order to defend our our identity and our sense of you know difference from the other people. Uh, but but that actually isn't the case. And uh, and another example that I give in the book is that you know right after the the Sandy Hook shootings, uh, the uh, Pew did a study and asked people uh, to the extent to which they approved of of um, the government creating a background checks law for gun purchases. And uh, and they and something like 90% of the entire American population agreed, including uh, 80-something percent of Republicans agreed that there should be legislation enforcing background checks. And then they were asked, uh, you know, do you approve of Congress passing a bill that would enforce background checks? So almost the same question, but this is now Congress actually doing it. And and Republican support for that dropped by 20 percent. So only 50-something percent of Republicans then supported the bill itself. So, you know, 80-something percent supported the actual th- thinking about the law, but only only 50-something percent supported the bill, which essentially means when when it comes to party victory in the government, uh, people have different opinions on what they want done than when it comes to actual policies on the ground. So plenty of people would be happy for a for a bill, uh, or sorry, for a law um, that enforces this policy that everyone agrees with. But the people who are in on TV would say this is a big loss for that party. Uh, that they can't, they they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with the idea that their party lost on something, and so they their approval of the legislation is is diminished. So those are two different things. The, the you know what our actual opinions are and our actual level of agreement is different than what we are willing to accept our government to do because mm. we don't want to feel like our party is losing. Okay, and I feel like just this this last uh, the, these last few answers you gave really should illuminate for a lot of people listening um, what what what's hap- what, what what's happening? Like every time I go to Twitter and then it has that prompt, it's like well, what's happening? I'm like I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and uh, there's this sense of like how did the world go crazy? Are we all poisoned? Is you know social media destroying our minds? Uh, why can't the other one with the other side listen to me? Are they in a cult? Um, and, you know, both sides think the other side is brainwashed or it's in a cult or something. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and, you know, what your work and the work of some other people in your field are, are, is, is suggesting is that these are, you know, psychological, the, the environment is changing and it's, it's affecting our psychological responses to the environment, which then causes the environment to change even more. And we're sort of in this weird feedback loop right now where, um, uh, you know, there's something out there cause some cause partisanship to increase something. There was, there's, a, there's a million, million variables that caused that to happen. And uh, polarization began to, occur, began to occur. But then once psychology, our, our innate human psychology locked into that, it started driving that polarization. Is that, is that a fair reading? Yeah. Well, and in fact, I would argue that, that one of the more powerful things that, that drives it has been, has been uh, this, you know, sort of identi- the identities are in, that are 
connected to our parties, um, becoming more separated. So our racial identities and our religious identities are, are being separated by parties so that, um, you know, when I said before, we don't, we don't want our party to lose. Um, if, if your, if your racial and your religious identity is connected to your party identity, then you, then you don't want your racial, religious and party identity to lose much more strongly than you care about just your party identity. So it's that the, our, our, party, our parties are taking up an increasingly large portion of our sort of self-concept real estate. And, and so the, the, the stakes of the game are much higher mm. now than they were, you know, 50 years ago. Is there, um, is there any consensus on, on how that's, that's happening? I know that the sort of folk political science idea is that it was secularization or something to that effect that people used to, their identities were tied to religion or they were tied to their, there's also the idea that we uh, used to be tied to our local geography. You know, we were, we were, we were members of our town first and then, or we were members of our subdivision and then our town or whatever you live in. (laughs) And then, and then, you know, national politics was almost something that we thought about, you know, on the side or on the back burner uh, or in relation to our local politics. Um, is there any consensus as to what is why we've become, you know, Republicans or Democrats first or libertarians first or whatever you are first and then all these other identities second? Is that is there anything that's um, that is there any consensus in political science as to why? Well, so there's a couple of different um, major things, I think. The first, the first was the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, after which we had a bunch of Southern Democrats very gradually leave the Democratic Party, because party ID is a strong, has always been a very strong identity. Um, the, it's hard to switch parties, right? It's like, it's like converting to a different religion. Most people don't do it. And, and so after the, you know, conservative Southern Democrats, you know, really disliked the Civil Rights Act that their party had enacted, uh, they, they didn't just become Republicans. They sort of slowly, gradually moved away from the Democratic Party, and then the next generation could, uh, could identify as Republican. So that took that took a, a generation, and that's really what we saw happening during the 1970s and 80s, um, when there were a lot of cross-cutting identities, and that there was low polarization then because um, people weren't sure exactly which party they belonged with because it was in the middle of this process of of kind of realignment. And then the second thing that happened is that. Um, the religious right really became involved in politics in the 1980s, and uh, and and the Republican Party, you know, I, I'm not sure which direction it went, but the the Republican Party and the and the religious right decided that they were meant for each other, and they and they really started working together, and and the to the extent that by the year 2000, essentially all of the uh, all of the requests of the um, focus on the family, I think it was, or no, sorry, uh, man, what was it? I'm oh, contract with the American family. Mm. So all of the all of the the platform requests of the with, of the contract with the American family, which was sort of the the Christian coalition um, platform, uh, were were included in the uh, Republican Party platform by the year 2000. So that also sent a very strong signal to voters. You know, which party is your party? And and those, so those were social social changes that happened. And essentially what it did was send racial cues and religious cues to the voters to give them additional information as to which party represents you the best. Wow. And it's much easier information to understand mm. than, you know, who likes taxes and who likes welfare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes, that makes so the, a shocking a, amount of sense. Okay, good. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then, well, it, but of course that was facilitated by also this increasingly partisan media. So not only did we have much easier cues because they were racial and religious, but we also had a partisan media that was telling us exactly which the cues were and what we should be, oh, which wow. party we were supposed to belong to and who we were. So it's feedback loops on top of feedback loops. The, uh, in the actual world itself, mm-hmm. you've got these parties who are um, slowly incorporating um, things that are already identities, and then that causes people to move more into the party, and then it makes it more, it sorts and sorts and sorts, and then the media just wants to make money, so it's responding to the to the marketplace that's changing, and it then becomes another driver of that marketplace. Um, and then you've got human psychology that's, uh, <laughs> that is groupy psychology that is responding to all this that's causing it that's then driving it more it's like three feedback loops causing uh, a perfect storm of feedback yes yeah it's <laughs> oh it, yeah God. it is kind of the perfect it is kind of the perfect storm uh great and Plus that, social media right so, and then oh, we have yeah. social media on top of it where we can just start yelling at each other for being bad people oh yeah and social media today i feel like is is like 98 percent tribal signaling at this point or whatever terms we want to use um, because mm-hmm. it's it's what drives engagement. It's not, yeah. it's not in yeah. Facebook. It's not in Facebook's interest to um, to make people engage with their platform less. Um, so that's why they're so really squirrely about all this. Well, and it's all, it's also not in the news media's interest to explain how policies are going to affect the electorate at large, rather than to say which party won and which party lost this this legislative vote. And and really, what so that's sort of the the story of that of the background checks um, bill is that is that you know the way that it's portrayed in the media is to say these are the winners and these are the losers, and then everybody watches because they want to know if they won or they lost. But if they say this is the bill, these are the details, this is how many you know people it would help, this is how many people it would hurt, these are the things that you need to know, no one's going to watch that. That's and true. So that's true. As long as the that's media, on C- that's on C-SPAN. It's really, <laughs> Yeah, it's super boring. And nobody watches but, C-SPAN. But if it's like, who, <laughs> nobody watches C-SPAN. But if it's who's the winner and who's the loser, and you're in one of those groups, then you're going to pay attention. Yeah, and I've seen that Like, uh, there's a sort of it bleeds, it leads um, aspect of modern um, cable news, which is uh, instead of it being somebody was you know shot or there's some weird thing that's happened in your local community, it's uh, it's always presenting whatever is happening in politics as an us versus them thing, as someone winning and losing, as can you believe what this person said about this person? Um, it's it makes total sense that someone who was adept at uh, and was steeped in the tabloid um, and uh, reality television version of entertainment to rise up in a land in a landscape like that. Absolutely, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Is this right? It, recently, there was there was a news article saying, "Is this you know are are the tariffs a win for the president?" <laughs> <It's> <laughs> right. Like, well, tariffs aren't. <laughs> Who wins democracy? Right. Like, I and mean, that's that's ultimately the question. And there should there shouldn't be there shouldn't be like one half of the of the country wins democracy type of answer to that question. Yeah. Well, this leads to something that you say you talk about in the book, which is as you know, as the nation grows more partisan, there's this idea of the other that is just everywhere. Where whoever, whatever you do, whoever whoever you are, whatever group you're part of, the idea of the other is something that um, that has become you know omnipresent, and it's something that candidates in every era since there's been politics since we wore togas, it's something that candidates can easily tap into, and um, there's a a sense out there, I think, that, that people like Donald Trump 
are brainwashing people or tricking them or turning them into hate mongers or something like that. But I get the sense from your book that Trump, like many before him and many who will come after, it just simply took advantage of the existing political landscape. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, he's definitely not. I mean, I, I started writing the book in 2009. I had no idea that Trump was coming. Um, so he's definitely the, an example of this rather than the cause of it. Um, and the thing I like to th- I, I, I say about Trump is is that you know his campaign did two uh, really effective things. One was using the term winning as much as possible. Um, and also admitting that people were feeling like losers, right? He was saying, we're losers. We lose all the time. And that spoke to a lot of people. And then I'm going to make us win again. And then he, he just kept repeating that word winning. And that, you know, that when we have a polarized electorate, that really gets at this sense of like, I really need to win. Um, and and the other thing that he did was um, uh, point at a target to be the the, the scapegoat for why people felt like they were losers. And so that, it goes back to the lion, to the lion example, right? If you don't know where the lion is, you have nothing to fight. Uh, but you, you feel anxious, you don't know what's going on, and you need to hide. Um, but if you do know where the lion is, and you're told that you're a winner, and you feel, you know, surrounded by these other people who are strong, um, then the, you know, the way that psychology talks about it is that creates a more angry response, which is an approach emotion. You get up and you start doing things like fighting. Mm. And so effectively what Trump was able to do was to take all these sort of, these people who are feeling vaguely anxious, like things were not, things were not going right for them. They didn't like the way that the, that things were happening in their lives and in the country. And, and, but they didn't know why exactly. And, and he pointed his finger at, you know, immigrants and Muslims and, you know, whoever else and said, that's the reason that this is all happening to you. Mm-hmm. And, and, now you know where the source of your threat is. Go get it. And so effectively what he did was change anxiety into anger for these people. And anxiety is an emotion that makes you sit down, and anger is an emotion that makes you get going. And so he got a lot of people, you know, revved up, and, uh, and, he, and he effectively made them feel more powerful and, and you know, like they deserve to be in power. Hmm. It, similar to, as you argue in the book, how, you know, we... There are these forces that lead to our, uh, you know, intergroup and in-group and weird identity stuff. And then after we're within those groups, we there are forces that then act upon us. Um, something that sort of made it made uh, it made it made me feel bad. It was uh, you you said that uh, once someone like this go, comes into power, anyone who uses this us versus them, winning versus losing strategy on a on a. Um, partisan electorate, once they come to power, that same partisanship then allows them to disregard norms. And then once they disregard those norms, norms are, are fragile psychological constructs in the beginning, the, those norms deteriorate. Is that what's happening? That's part of what's happening. Yeah. I mean, the, the, nobody, no one feels identified with, with norms, Right. That's that can uh, you can have norms of your group um, and you can strongly, you know, try to behave in a way that that comports with those norms so that you don't get kicked out of the group. Um, But if you feel like, you know, the norms are of another group, then why do you need to worry about them? Hmm. And 
And so, you know, there's this idea of Trump coming in and being, you know, draining the swamp and being, you know, this sort of new, um, you know, starting over type of type of president. And so those norms didn't really apply to him or his or his supporters necessarily. And, you know, those were those were like establishment government norms that that they didn't feel particularly bound by because they didn't really identify as, you know, typical establishment, you know, political people. So they really probably had very little, I mean, there was very little recourse to, to uh, betraying those norms. Generally, the way that we keep um, people obeying norms is by social sanction. And, and so, you know, if you, if you violate the norms of your group, then your group sanctions you and you, and you, and you are shunned or punished or something happens. You, you notice that you've done something wrong. Um, but if it's not your group that's shaming you, then there's very little that can be done to make you pay attention to those rules. Hmm. Um, okay. Now I'm all, now I'm super freaked out. Uh, so taking everything we've talked about so far. There's something in the book that you talk about, and this is this is really important, and it's something that um, that uh, it's changed the way I see the world. And you say that with polarization, and you talk about three ideas: polarization, sorting, and ideology. Um, and you say that these have traditionally been seen as something we do based on the issues that we find important. You argue that there is really a second way that groups become polarized, a second way they sort themselves, and a second way that they express or invest in ideology. And I thought we'd just run through those one at a time to sort of see what's driving that second version of things, this second phenomenon. Um, so, and you use these terms, and if you can just like sort of help us understand them, uh, there's issue-based and identity-based. So, what is the difference between an issue-based polarization and identity-based polarization? Right. So, the so the, the traditional view that sort of when I started my dissertation, the only view of polarization was issue-based. So, do Americans, um, are, are Americans becoming increasingly extreme in their issue positions um, and sort of moving to the two ends of the spectrum? So, our, you know, our, our, are Republicans becoming extremely conservative and Democrats becoming extremely liberal? Uh, that would be polarization. Uh, and and so the the reason that I sort of started this entire project was to say, well, what if there's a different kind of polarization? What if we're not we're not polarized in our issue positions? We have hold relatively moderate issue positions, but we're so attached to our to our identities that we feel very distant from our outgroups, regardless of the issue content. And so, um, so, so, so the issue-based polarization basically means that we disagree, and the identity-based polarization means that we feel like we are very different people from the from the other, the partisans in the other team, regardless of our actual mm. issue agreements. Okay. So, and then building on that, what is um, issue-based sorting versus identity-based sorting? So right, so sorting is actually um, was was one of the alternative example uh, alternative explanations for what was going on. Instead of polarization, it was sorting because uh, if polarization means that people are becoming much more extreme, moving to the extreme ends of the spectrum, sorting means that it's just that Democrats are becoming consistently more liberal and Republicans are becoming consistently more conservative. They're not becoming more extreme. They're just they're making all of their issue positions this on the same end of the spectrum. So it doesn't mean that they're extreme. It just means that they're consistent, which on average would make it look like Democrats are becoming more liberal and Republicans are becoming more conservative. But really, it's just people scooting over to the correct side of the spectrum on all of the issues. Mm. So that's the traditional idea of sorting is that 
you know, partisans are learning which what goes with what and, and which positions they should be holding. Um, Identity-based sorting is, is uh, I also call it social sorting, which is basically this process that I talked about earlier where um, the parties become increasingly racially divided and religiously divided. Um, and, and so, you know, when partisans are looking at the other side, they're not seeing people who are like them. And, you know, to the extent that they are, that, that people, partisans are sorted socially, they, they, uh, they're going to find it a lot harder to speak to and to understand and to humanize the people on the other side of the aisle. Mm. And so, and this, uh, this was, uh, when I read this, I thought, uh, how could this possibly be identity-based? But I'm, uh, obviously it is after everything we've spoken about so far. But uh, the difference, what is the difference between issue-based ideology and identity-based ideology? So this is maybe the, the, the yeah, the most controversial one. The, so basically, we, the word ideology classically means, um, you know, what is, what is your, system, your system of beliefs, right? Like, what issues do you hold and how do they fit together? Like, are they, you know, they to be generally liberal or generally conservative? Um, Identity-based ideology is just simply, do you identify with the term liberal or the term conservative? regardless of your issue positions. Because there is, uh, there's research, um, there's a book by Ellis and Stimson called Ideology in America that talks about how the, the American electorate on average is what they call operationally liberal. What that means is on average, Americans prefer liberal policies. But also on average, the American population is symbolically conservative, which means that they prefer to call themselves conservatives on average. So within the group of people that calls themselves conservatives, there's a lot of um, heterogeneity in terms of issue positions. And there's a wide range of issue positions that people who call themselves conservatives hold. It's a little smaller on the liberal, on people who call themselves liberal, because liberal was such a bad word for such a long time that you can sort of, you have to commit to it if you're going to call yourself that. <laughs> but... Um, but, the, but among people who call themselves conservatives, there is a very wide range of actual policy content. And, and so if that's possible, then there has to be something about the word conservative itself separate from the issues that make up the definition of conservatism that is meaningful to people. And, and so I started with that and then started measuring, you know, when you talk about liberals, do you say we rather than they, you know, uh, to what extent do you think of yourself as a conservative? How well does the term conservative describe you? And so these are these social identity-based questions. And what I found was that even among people who have completely conflicting issue positions with the label, so liberals who hold relatively conservative issue positions and conservatives who hold relatively left-leaning issue positions, um, even with people who have the wrong issue positions, the more strongly they identify with the label, the more they hate the other side. So liberals hate conservatives if they're very strongly identified as liberal, even if they don't have the right issue positions. And conservatives hate liberals even if they have the wrong issue positions, as long as they're strongly identified as conservatives. So there is a social effect that's happening with the terms liberals and conservatives that is not entirely related to the content of the, of the policies that go along with those terms. Mm. Okay. Well, to me, uh, I look at all this, I think about this, and I feel like I know there's a tendency out there to believe that we're all you know, driven by ideas, 
and we're not driven by any of these tribal allegiances or this group psychology or, um, you know, we don't, I don't think anyone wants to believe their saliva changes when they think about this kind of stuff. Uh, we want to think that it's the issues themselves, it's the facts of the matter that determine our attitudes about uh, issues and uh, whether or not, you know, and those attitudes determine whether or not we support gun control or abortion or fracking or if we believe in climate change or criticize the president or anything that is now currently oddly divided along party lines. And I think seeing that things like that are divided along party lines should clue you in that something is going on. And reading your book, it seems like you're making an argument that oftentimes collective action, and whether that's voting or protesting or something more than that, uh, and you say straight up in the book that activism is good, you know, uh, this collective action is good. But um, in the book, it seems like you're making an argument that our collective action sometimes is something we do on behalf of our group more than on behalf of our actual understanding or passion about the issue, or that passion comes from the groupiness. Um, is that so? Yeah, so the, the way that I explain it is we obviously want people to be active in politics. We don't want a completely apathetic electorate. The the place that it becomes problematic is when, um, you know, how I, how I, I said anger is an approach emotion. So if you just, and, and the ingredients of anger are generally, you know, this is simplifying it, but tend to be that you feel like you have a strong group around you and you know the, you know the source of your threat. So if those are the two things that are contributing to your anger um, and you're participating in politics on behalf of that strong group identity and that, you know, finger pointed at whatever is causing the threat to you, um, then you can, you're going to participate in politics kind of on behalf of that anger rather than, you know, thinking through which party better, best represents your interests. And, you know, sort of this is what uh, Aiken and Bartels call the folk theory of democracy, that, you know, people, people sit down and think about, uh, you know, wh which party is, is best matched to them and which one best represents their, their own personal uh, interests and values. And then they, then they, you know, make a reasoned decision, sort of like a banker choosing a, an investment. Um, but instead, um, you know, what, what ends up ha happening is that we, we start making these decisions much more like sports fans. Um, and, uh, and, and so if we're taking action like sports fans, um, you know, sports fans don't do anything productive, <laughs> you know, like they're not, they're not cheering for their team so that their team can then go like legislate things for their district and like help them get, you know, like subsidies <laughs> for their business. Like you, you cheer for your team just to make the team win. So the team can win and then the team wins and you don't expect anything more of them and you don't hold them accountable for whatever they do after the victory. And so if, you know, if you're participating in politics on behalf of just that, I just need that victory because it's going to make me feel really good. Because I'm so so strong, so much of my identity is invested in this party that I just need them to win, and I really don't care what happens after they win. That kind of activism is not great because essentially what that means is that we will be taking action on behalf of our party and not holding them accountable at all. If they do something bad or wrong or against our interests, we will not vote against them because they're our team. And just because your team misbehaves doesn't mean you, you stop being a fan of the team. So that type of activism, I argue, is actually not, normatively not good for democracy. We need accountability. We need an electorate that can hold elected officials accountable when they don't do the things that they're supposed to do. And if we have this sort of team-based uh, approach to activism, then uh, we're not going to be able to have that type of democratic accountability. People are always asking, how do I change these other people's minds? And, uh, and just to, to use like a specific example, like with uh, with what's going on on the uh, the border, which uh, you know 
people may find themselves in an argument with someone who is defending what's happening on the border. Um, and that's just one example of many things which you might find yourself arguing about. Um, and do you have any advice as to how to reach out to people uh, who are in the other side, whatever the other side is for you, and um, encourage them to see things differently? Well, so there's two different, there's two different ways to approach this. Um, one is to, is to try to get, you know, essentially change the subject away from politics. Like let, let, let the temperature of the conversation die down a little bit. Remember that your friends or, or relatives or whatever you are, you know, go cook a pie together or something and then come back to it when you're kind of at a more peaceful moment and you can actually talk sincerely. Because if if that's the first thing that comes up, then everybody's hackles go up and nobody's going to agree to anything. Um, the other, the I mean, the other argument that I've seen lately is just if, you know, if you're talking to somebody who has, who has just completely different, a completely different conception of reality than you do. And their, you know, their source of information is a completely, you know, it, you've never even heard of any of these things before. And they're using arguments that, you know, you've, that are complete nonsense to you. That's just not, it's almost not a conversation that's worth having. Um, unless, unless you can get back to that sort of calm moment when you can speak sincerely. But, but the, you know, starting off on a, in a place where you're, you're using completely different bases of reality and truth, that, that's just not a conversation that can really go anywhere. And so my, you know, my advice would be, don't start it that way. <laughs> it's like, don't, don't jump into a political argument with somebody um, before establishing some type of, of trust and rapport with them. Um, because you're both just going to go back to your camps and use your talking points and your brain is going to come up with every single reason that you're right and they're wrong. And that's the only thing your brain is going to come up with. There will be no empathy there will be no thoughtfulness. Um, but if, you know, you spend a little time together and, and then, and then maybe, you know, in a quieter moment say, you know, I just really, I'm really worried about those kids, you know, or some, you know, something that's human and thoughtful and, um, and, you know, just in order to sort of just take it down a few notches and then speak on a human level mm. rather than like, how dare Trump and his administration do, <laughs> you know, like that's, it's just not gonna, nothing is going to work as long as it's, as long as it's politicized that way. It has to be a human conversation uh. with your own feelings and thoughts and your own understanding that the other person has, you know, feelings. That's really, I like this, what you just said, because I think I get into a lot of arguments in which I realize the other person is pulling their, their information from a source that's hidden from, from me, and uh, I'm likely doing the same thing. And so we're almost by having a proxy war. Um, <laughs> and I find that the discussions are better when, we, in, when instead of doing that, the, the source is introduced up front. Like, this is what someone said, or this is an argument that I've seen somewhere what do you think of that argument? And now we're like directly addressing a shared thing that, and we're coming up with our own justifications. And we might, we might still have some kind of proxy war, but I find that discussion is better than the naked discussion, which is like, hey, what do you think about the, uh, the thing that happened in Russia? And then, you know, we're not actually having a conversation at that point. We're just launching arguments that our team has introduced as the best arguments when you face the other side. Right, you're just rehearsing your lines, basically. <laughs> That's good advice. Stop rehearsing your lines, everyone. Um, okay, yeah, just put them down. Put the script down. Please put the script down. Uh, that's going to be my main advice from now on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, this leads to my last question, which which is a big one, <laughs> and that is uh, the last time we spoke, um, I got a lot of emails and I got a lot of <laughs> tweets, and they all asked the same question pretty much, which was, um, I don't want to do this. Uh, <laughs> I Can I, what do I do? I mean, do I join a bunch of different groups? Do I uh, start reading the other side's newspapers? Um, there was that kind of thing. And then I guess there, there's another kind of question that people would ask, which was the same question, which is, you know, what do we do this as, how do we approach this problem as a society? Because you say in the book that um, as long as this social divide is maintained, then we're going to behave more like warring tribes than, than nations that have, you know, different values and different ideas about what policy should be enacted. And, so, you know, and now it's just like this side has to win, this side has to lose no matter what. Um, I feel like they're kind of the same question, which is just how do, what do we do? How do we fix it? And you, you know, you even have this as a chapter in the book, things that you have identified that we could do now based off our current understanding. I'm just going to stop talking and let you talk as long as you want about that, because I think that is the thing that people want to hear most from you once you have made them feel as bad as I currently feel. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the, the things that we can do, um, a bunch of the things that I talk about in the, in the book are things that could happen we wouldn't, it's not necessarily anything any individual person could do. So I think the probably the most promising thing is having another rift in one of the parties and another, a new realignment like we had in the 60s and 70s. Um, the, you know, the, that's not something we can do, but, um, but it's something that has happened before and could happen again. The, the other things that, that we're individually responsible for um, are, you know, one, one of the things that we know about um, intergroup prejudice is that we can combat it uh, on an individual level by practicing uh, practicing turning it around. So essentially saying, I just, I just made a, a snap judgment about this person based on their identity. I realize now that I did that. I'm going to be aware of it and I'm going to think about it um, and try to try to sort of change that snap judgment or that stereotype around in my head and practice thinking about that person as the opposite of the stereotype I just thought of. Mm. Um, and over time, you can get good at it. You know, you can you can practice it so much that that it becomes a little easier and it comes a little bit faster. The first immediate instinct is always going to be to to go after that person with the first you know with the stereotypes that are associated with them. But, but you can create, you know, by practicing, you can create a secondary response which can follow the first one relatively quickly that says, wait, 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 don't assume that. You know, give this person a chance. They're a human being. You know, they have family. They have, they have you know, they care about people. You know, they are, they're a normal human being. Um, the, the, you know, the problem with that is that it requires uh, motivation. So... I want, you know, and this is sort of where my research is going right now, and it's it's kind of a more controversial angle at this point, um, even than I get to in the book, which is who is motivated to do this? And uh, and unfortunately, not everyone is motivated in the same way to take these, ki- these types of actions. In general, the t- it, it, it's a lot easier to 
try to understand other people. It's a lot easier, according to this, going all the way back to the original social psychology, Marilyn Brewer uh, research talking about, you know, overlapping identities, is that people who have very homogeneous groups, so, you know, let's say you have a racial and a religious group, and most of the people in your racial group are also in your religious group and vice versa, those are highly overlapping groups. And in that, the people who have very highly overlapping groups tend to be more intolerant of outsiders, people who are not like them. People who have only mildly overlapping groups, so if, you know, if the majority of people in your racial group are actually a different religion from you, um, those people tend to actually be much more tolerant about group members and much more inclined to try to understand out-group members as human beings. So we have a problem where the people who are who need to do, who need to be motivated to do this, are already isolated in these very, you know, these very homogeneous social groups. And the more isolated they are, the less they're going to be motivated to try to understand outsiders. Hmm. Um, so that's that's problematic. And and it's like the people who need to try the most are, not, are the people who are the least inclined to try. Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> And and in fact, and this is and this is where it does get controversial, is that the there there is I mean I feel like at this point we have to say there is a party asymmetry here, um, and in, and I've seen this in uh, desire to compromise. I've looked at this from the 2016 some of the 2016 uh, American National Election Studies data, I've seen this in desire to compromise in you know feelings towards outgroup members, um, and what I found is that you know. Uh, people who, who are largely in the Republican Party, because the Republican Party is largely white and Christian um, and straight, they tend to be affiliated or they tend to be socially exposed to other partisans who are very, very similar to them. And it's it's really relatively rare for a Republican to meet another Republican who is racially or religiously distinct from them. Mm. Um, Democrats are the party of like everybody else. So so for for any given Democrat, you know, Democrats are like 56 percent white, you know, 19 percent black, 17 percent Hispanic in 2016. So for Democrats, any any given Democrat is likely going to be exposed to another partisan member, another party member who is racially or religiously distinct from them, because there are plenty of very religious uh uh, Democrats who are people of color, and there are plenty of very secular white Democrats. So, so most of the time within the larger party umbrella, Democrats tend to be exposed to people unlike them on a much, um, on a, a sort of a much more regular basis, or at the very least, they think of other other partisans, you know, other people in their party in their group, um, as more diverse than they than than you know just this who who exactly that one person is. Hmm. Which means that we're going to have this sort of situation where um, the people who are probably reaching out to you saying, I want to change this, I want to be more tolerant, um, are the people who are already more tolerant and probably more exposed to people who are unlike them. Uh, in not partisan, not in a partisan way, but in a in a in a you know racial, religious, other types of cultural, geographic, social ways. Um, and and so that is something that we're going to have to address at some point. I don't know, you know, I don't really address it in the book. Um, but it, it is a pr it is a problem that you know saying everyone needs to behave the same way to fix this problem is not exactly correct because mm. it's the people who who are the most socially isolated who really need to practice this the most. Yeah. Um, and and it's and it's unclear to me exactly how to motivate that because that's a, an extremely threatening thing to say to somebody who feels very comfortable in their in their homogeneous socially homogeneous group. Um, and then the last thing that I would say is um, 
is this, and this is also not individually on us, but if anybody's, you know, thinking about, you know, media and the way that journalism works, you know, to, to really stop trying to frame everything as, as a zero sum game, right? It, it, it's, it's not good for ratings. So this probably is not going to happen, but to the extent that we describe legislation as a win for one side or the other, we're never going to have compromise. And, and the only way for democracy to work is for there to be compromised. So we have to somehow get to a point where, you know, ideally the news would say, this is the legislation, this is what it does. The whole Congress is voting on it. And let's see what happens. And, and then we could watch to see what the outcome of the vote is and not to see, did my team win or not? And then if they won, great, I'm turning off the TV. I'm not going to pay attention to what happens <laughs> with that law anymore. Yeah. So, you know, it would be great if we could have a little bit, you know, different type of of uh, coverage of the way that politics works. Because right now we are, you know, we're telling ourselves a story about a war that's going on in our country, and it's only making the war worse. And we need to find a way to step back and think, okay, what's good? What's the greater good? Find a way to think about, you know, how can we look for what's the best for the most people? And and that's, you know, obviously it's not human instinct to do that, but there. We've done it before, and you know we've had we've had cross-cutting identities between the parties, you know, not that long ago, and and it is possible for us to have you know cross-cutting identities again that would at least link us to the other side about you know in order in terms of thinking of them as human beings. And then the last thing that I'll say is that uh, the the one policy that I've thought of this is actually since I wrote the book the one policy that I've thought of that could work um, would be service. So. One way to get people of varying backgrounds to work together is to put them to work together doing some type of service, right? Working in a soup kitchen or building houses for Habitat or working in Peace Corps doing something. Or working in the military, right? Even the, the military is, the, is a giant melting pot of all different kinds of political orientations. And, and so one thing that might be, you know, that could be helpful is to have, you know, somehow work together this is this is you know my like blue you know moonshot idea um but like you know possibly connected to um tuition right like free tuition free college tuition for people but on on the condition that they do you know two years of service and then that service is not done immediately right with their neighbors right that service mixes them together with other people who are from different places and have different perspectives and then you would have you know a generation of of americans who sees other partisans as human beings and um and does service which is great and gets to go to college which is also great <laughs> So that's my that's my one like optimistic outcome is if we could do that, then maybe we could we could have a little bit more um, understanding. Mason is a professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland, and you can find her on Twitter at Lily Mason, Ph.D. That's L-I-L-Y Mason, Ph.D. The book is Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. (music) 
That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get podcasts, or youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find the show notes with links to everything that we talked about. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We are also on Facebook slash you are not so smart. And if you'd like to support this one person operation, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, extra content, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And please tell everyone you know about the show. When you're in one of those threads, it says, hey, what's your favorite podcast? Mention the show and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. I'm working on some new stuff. It won't be the next show, but it will be soon about the latest research into fake news, how it's affecting us, how we consume it, why we're panicking over it, and if that panic is justified. Look for that episode soon. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?